and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of the Tom, Dick and Hyman Show. Hyman is still missing in action, said he was just going out for a quick walk, hasn't been back in months, here's hoping we don't find him in a coma in the jungles of Brazil. Do you read about that story? No. Oh yes, I did actually. Was he German? I think he was American. He walked from like Canada to Brazil. But he was gone for five years. Yeah, and they found him in a coma in the jungles of Brazil. He said he'd been been mugged or something. Hello, hello, by the way. Yes, that's the voice of Tim. Hi. And uh, also joining us is Cameron. He walked like 6,500 miles. Ridiculous. Tim and Cameron are joining me to review Mel Gibson's return to gory, violent World War II glory. A film that neither of you have seen, I believe, Hapsal Ridge. <laughs> no, I, I, I was busy watching children's films. Fantastic. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> We're wondering, is the centre-left dying in the Western Hemisphere? Yes. Or has the internet just skewed our perception of reality to make us think that way? More on these interesting yet divisive topics after a bit more of the intro music. So, is the centre-left dying? Yes. Why would you say that, Cameron? Um, <laughs> I know. I just why. think it's Hedda's heyday. Um, I mean, what Tony Blair? Yeah, Marmite Man. Like, love him or loathe him, you know. Um, he actually did achieve a ridiculous amount Do in his time. Him? Do you love um, him? I respect what he achieved. You said love or loathe. Uh, anyway, so <laughs> do like, you love him? I don't love him, but you know, I, I respect what he achieved. But essentially, what he did, he took a party that was like always held to the firm left and yeah. was like detested, modernized, and then it. moved and modernized it and made it incredibly popular and so powerful that it lasted for what I mean, twenty years essentially. He won three consecutive elections, yeah. which is unheard and, of for Labour. And if you look at some of the things that he achieved in his time, or his party achieved at the very least, it's a real fucking legacy. I mean, look, yeah. minimum wage. Well, yeah. he he made the party relevant he, yeah. he, he he had them you know reduce their more extreme demands in terms of things like nuclear disarmament brought it from out of obscurity to, but yeah, yeah. It was minimum wage he devolved power to scotland and wales northern ireland agreement northern ireland's peace agreement there was a huge investment in the nhs i think it was plus 25 percent increase in real terms but you're saying like they, they should be more like that now and they, they won't decline well, any essentially further. they managed to achieve quite things that people agree today are very popular i mean when they were first introduced i mean what was it the yeah. the, the, the fear of uh, adding a minimum wage people were claiming it was going to ruin the economy and like destroy everything well yeah. in mcdonald's we now have the automated service checkout thing you know you get a ticket and it tells you your number you go up to a touch screen yeah, i hate that yeah, I actually I know, but that's but mcdonald's brought that, that in because oh, they always said oh if you like stick us with a minimum wage we're just going to have to move to automated systems but Boy, i think it was going to happen already anyway yeah. pre-order with your smartphone what i, what I wanted <laughs> to ask cameron though was was that like the, maybe the, the problem labor have is they can't reintroduce a minimum wage. They can't de devolve Scotland and Wales and Northern Ireland. They can't do all these great things that again. they did yeah, again. Yeah, no, so, so what? So what? 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 No, what new what, things can they, they do? That's what they achieved when they were in power. Yeah, what yeah. I was trying to lead up to saying is Tony Blair did this massive, uh, fantastic job. When he left, it's it, Labour's gone completely the other way. Uh, Corbyn's like they lost, obviously. Conservatives came into power, and Labour's switched vroom, back to that like almost unelectable party uh, that was forgotten about. And I think they again, it needs to be like a what, what are you going to call it? Like a wheel. It's going to be a new circle of the same shit where Labour's going to be out of play for a while, and then they're going to have to come back. But what I want to ask though is, what about the centre left? Because I'm. Um, the uh, criticism of Tony Blair was that he was more centre-right than centre-left. 
I don't think that's actually kind of true. I think there were times he was centre left, other times he was right, centre right. But either way, it's going to still be the strongest like uh, mental memory of what the centre left was. Um, yeah, and I don't think there is a real alternative. Where so, is the centre left now? Though, well, it's gone. Labour's like switched completely, and they've gone. Mm. They've gone. But and do you think that's? I'm going to ask you. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? What, Corbyn? No, no, the centre-left disappearing. Like, no. Is the centre-left better than the centre-right? I don't understand. As someone who sees themselves as centre-left, I'd have to say yes. Okay. But I might be biased. It, why be centre-left? Why not just go all the way, like, full left? But the well, thing is, there, there isn't, like a, there isn't a left an anymore, isn't there? It's like centre-left or communist. Let's define terms. To me, centre-left is social democrat. So basically, you're someone who wants change... But you understand that it has to be done in small incremental ways rather than large, radical, big changes. Because when you try and do quick, big, radical changes, they don't stick. That sounds more like conservatism to me. No, because at the heart of it, you've got change, progressive change. Whereas conservative is like, let's get things back to how it was. But like I say, you can only change things so much, can't you? What I was going to say was defining terms. So centre-left, social democrat. The left, like Corbyn, is basically just flat-out socialist. And I think... um, for about 100 and 150 years, what marked you out as a left winger versus a right winger was basically whether or not you were a socialist. You were pro the workers owning the means of production. But then by the late 70s, early 80s, factory jobs are dying out. It's becoming more about admin and services and socialism becomes largely irrelevant. So now there's a real kind of question mark over what does it mean to be left wing? What marks someone out as a left winger? you're unemployed or you're at college (laughs) (laughs) because like like you say um the sort of manufacturing turned into a service and admin and now of course the service and admin is all getting roboticized so Mm. it's turning into more like delivery drivers (laughs) (laughs) uber drivers basically once that once that's gone you could almost say like their traditional user base has has dried up I can even eventually, eventually imagine unions becoming a thing as the past, as people well, use, as, as people sort of become sort of self-employed via an app. Everyone will be an Uber driver soon. Plus, Uber's, Uber's branched out. They've got Uber food now, so you just call up a taxi driver oh and it my picks God, up I your food that. from a restaurant. I saw this. I saw an upper middle class office guy getting his lunch from a clearly working class delivery driver. I it's see disgusting. It. Why is it disgusting? It's like India and the car system. Yeah, but most it's of the car system is branching out of fucking labour. It, no, <laughs> it's it, a good idea. It, it's a whole new subsection of society. I'm telling you, the underclass. I spend most of my days driving around central London, and the last two years, the traffic has got incredibly bad. Because there's just hundreds so pollution. Uber drivers, is Uber it? drivers. So, but anyway, but I see it's this section of society who are like fucking working as slaves. Like Uber drivers, they only make about thirty percent barely of every enough to t- live. Ticket. So, to Cameron's point, the centre left were pretty. Bi- they were a big deal in the nineties, the late nineties. Most definitely, but they've kind of disappeared now. They've sort of just. It's less that the centre left is dying, and more that they're just kind of walking away and letting the left, the far left, if you will, kind of just take their place yeah just standing back from the sidelines and just sniping at the left which is basically what we're doing now in this podcast but yeah i think after the iraq war i mean Mm. it it had a long lasting effect on the british public's opinion of labor and they started to become distrusted and blair left and it was just followed by a series of weaker and weaker politicians taking over well, gordon and, and brown achieving was a lot. gordon brown was like a disaster as well he was he wasn't he, charismatic enough to be a leader but he had such, such burning ambition and to be jeremy Prime corbyn Minister. now has taken the party into a radical swing to the left and i i, I just don't i think there's there's a lot of bitter pills that are being swallowed by followers who might not agree with these sudden changes in fairness to corbyn he did double the membership of the Labour Party but 
it's transpired now that actually the size of the Labour Party membership has no relevance whatsoever to how electable Labour is. Conservatives are going to win the next election. But you mentioned uh, the invasion of Iraq back in 2003. And if I remember correctly, at the point that we invaded, 60% of British people didn't want to invade. And then Tony Blair came out with a 45-minute claim. And then that's when it shifted to 50-50 for or against. But for me, what Iraq was, was obviously a massive thing. Like you say, a lot, a lot of people were, were against uh, the yeah. Iraq war. Uh, it was one of the biggest public mobilisation marches in the history of the Stop country. The war. Almost a million people marched on Parliament. They still went to war. Yeah. It was a disaster. The country of Iraq is still suffering. There's still fighting going on there to this day. Well, going back to Iraq invasion, generally speaking, the right were kind of for invasions. They were for getting rid of Saddam Hussein and the left were generally against it. Yeah. Now I kind of, I look back at this time as the point where the left climbed into bed with Islam is how I would phrase it. But I just remember left-wing groups starting to work with Islamic groups and it, right. like, it didn't really make sense to me at the time because Islam is fairly right-wing. It's a, cons- it's a conservative religion. So why is the progressive left-wing groups, why are they teaming themselves up with a conservative religion. It didn't make any sense to me. And it's like, I think the only real reason is the left is generally post-Soviet Union collapse is pretty anti-Western. And generally speaking, a lot of Muslims are anti-Western. They tend to hate America at the very least. Yeah, The enemy of my enemy is my friend. Yeah, but it's like, that's the only thing they had in common. Yeah. Well, that's one thing in common. That's what you need. But do you think that's the reason why, um, do you remember Cage? Johnny Cage from Mortal Kombat. No, the Islamic group Cage. Yeah. And then uh, the, they were working with left-wing groups, and then it turned out they were a bunch of Islamists. Yeah. And the left kind of had egg in their face yeah. after that. They said some pretty horrendous things. Like they, like one terrorist guy, they said he was a beautiful person. Yeah, yeah. Some backwards views. Yeah. And um, I think that has done quite a bit of harm to the left, that they look as though the perception is they're in bed with people who would happily cut their throats like i've seen um i see you sometimes placards that say gays for palestine yeah if you were gay in palestine they'd throw you off a roof they'd stone you do you know what i mean like patriarchal traditionalist conformist uh ways of thought one worldism as well totalitarianism like you say islam communism it's 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 going in the same direction you can see why they'd be bedfellows definitely mm. but they are they are very stupid because like you say in one country they're holding placards saying gays for islam in the next country they're getting like thrown off roofs yeah it's a bit it's blind but- it's blinkered and blind it's it's sort of it's like it's like the common problem we have with everyone's got their own internet filter now so they only choose to see a certain view of the the picture yeah. more on that on segment two the collapse of the soviet union this had a kind of uh, dampening effect i think for the left it was kind of like spiritually they died a little bit they looked to the soviet union as a kind of an example of how far you can take the left you know and then when the soviet union collapsed it didn't the left didn't take it amazingly well you had a big fight between um like you say cam you brought up new labor Tony Blair's modernising force on the mm. Labour Party. He had to kind of kick out the old Trotskyists first in order to do that, to make Labour electable. Now Corbyn's doing the exact opposite. Yeah, he's putting it all back. <laughs> and I think you had a left wing back in the day that was very liberally minded, whereas I think the contemporary left are actually quite illiberal. And I, I can say, like, maybe so as so far, we've been saying ways that this left has been sort of self-sabotaging. But maybe we should ask the question, maybe one of the reasons the centre-left is decreasing and diminishing 
is it because the competition is so much better from the right in other directions be that further left or more to the right mm. maybe so so what about the competition yeah what else is in the marketplace in a way yeah what is it that people like socialism basically died communism if you ask a real hard left winger communism never really got off the ground it was state capitalism yeah in a way it was but i think they've uh, made the mistake the left of just coming to the conclusion that 300 years of history of like liberal enlightenment values they kind of just dismiss it as oh it's just a bunch of white male racists being white male racists mm. we just we just discount all of that we don't give a crap about any of it we want to make a new history we want to tear we want to tear down the status quo and create a new society and blah 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 right we didn't land on plymouth rock <laughs> but they've thrown away reason i think some of it isn't i think sometimes if it's not reason it's like a misplaced guilt you do get the concept of white guilt but i don't buy into white guilt just because of your race i think a lot of i've noticed it sometimes with um like very rich people you can sort of sense that they secretly wish they were poor. They secretly wished that because it, they'd be cooler. A guilty conscience. So I think that that's part of it because a lot of Sounds these like people, Christian guilt. But a lot of these people, you know, like you say, the left, they traditionally come from like a, Catholic hi, guilt. a higher education background. So they might have had that that bit of money, and then when they go out into the world and and see the real inequality, they actually think, oh shit, how can I rebalance myself karmically? But it's quite a selfish thing to. You know, is it for you know if they start forcing their opinion on people to make themselves feel better, then that's that's quite selfish and annoying. It puts people off. You're right, Camo. Yeah, you touched upon the the left intelligentsia, the academic left, right? I think the left have basically been in control of academia for about 25 years now. It's very, very left wing at all levels, like normal standard education and higher education. Yeah, uh, but I think the left in the 70s started becoming obsessed with postmodernism and post-structuralism. Ideas that came out of France, but ideas that didn't last very long in France. By the mid-80s, the French had given up on postmodernism. They recognised it was just... It's an obscurantism that doesn't really lead you anywhere. It doesn't provide you any real answers. You just kind of end up in a confused place. But in Britain and America, the left-wing academ- the academics, they're yeah. still obsessed with it. They still think... The answer, the truth is lies in postmodernism and moral relativism. But of course, that's the thing. But you say even in, in education and in the act of educating yourself, there is a nobility in that. It is, it is a good thing to do to make yourself more intelligent. So you can see why people in academic, the academia, they would sort of have a sort of nobility of purpose. However misplaced it is, you know, they, they, they sort of always, will always go in this direction because they feel like they need to solve society's ills. Yeah, but I think they're not doing it. They're not applying a real intellectual rigor. And I'm talking more about the humanities here. That space in academia is completely dominated by the left. I don't think the right even get a look in on that one. Would you say that's your experience, Cam? I don't know. You're talking about subject material that's beyond my fucking 10 and 11 year old teaching case. When <laughs> <laughs> I say it, it's like different personalities attract different things. And you said, like, the right wing doesn't get a look in it, doesn't. Because how. how Not at universities, no. I, I don't think the right wing sort of mindset is traditionally attracted to higher education. Or maybe because you. It's like you have to sort of uh, adapt or die. So if you are a bit right wing when you go in, mm, yeah. you find you suddenly have to get left wing just to survive or get laid. But I found 
I got more right wing when I was working on like building sites and I was surrounded by people talking about disgusting things the whole time. It made me more sort of disgusting and, and right wing. Well, yeah, exactly. You adapt to whoever you're with. Exactly. I mean, and I think that's a sign of a, 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 a good social skill, um, being able to talk to people in different ways to accommodate a, mm. you know, pleasant situation. It's a survival but, thing, really. Yeah, exactly. Well, we talked about last week. You remember Richard B. Spencer, the alt-right intellectual kind of guy who got punched in the face? Now, the left, the left are arguing, okay, yeah, the left are advocating that actually, yes, it is not only just okay to punch a neo-Nazi in the face, it's your duty to punch a neo-Nazi in the face, right? Yeah. But I've noticed in the span of the last three or four weeks, the left have gone from advocating, yes, you punch neo-Nazis in the face, to advocating that you should punch anyone who voted Trump in the face, <laughs> to advocating you should punch anybody who's even remotely right-wing in the face. To get this, this like peak insanity here, a 10-year-old kid went to school with a, a red Make America Great Again cap, and uh, some other kids were bullying him, one kid punched him in the face, and in the video of it, you can hear the teacher egging the other kids on no encouraging them to bully him no and it's like the left are like well if you're gonna wear a MAGA hat you're gonna get punched in the face aren't you do you know what I mean and it's like the left's moral compass is kind of a bit broken at the moment mm. it's like they're almost acting like neo-nazis well, it's like suppression of expression. They're acting in a militant fashion. Because liberalism would say, look, your ethics should be universal. Uh-huh. You should apply your ethical standards to, to anybody else in the same way you'd apply it to yourself. Yeah. But for me, I, what I'm seeing in the contemporary left now is there's this ethos of, well, look, if you were to do it to me, that would be an injustice. Right. But if I did it to you, if I declared you a right winger, a neo-Nazi, a white nationalist, that justifies me doing anything I want to you. We're seeing on uh, university campuses a, a kind of uh, a skewing the less moral perception mm. where any sort of conservative speaker who wants to give a lecture is declared as being guilty of inciting violence. Being declared guilty of uh, hate speech has been now classified as violence by the left, the far left. Yeah. So even just to be right wing and deliver a speech means you're violent. But the left... They'll happily get in your face like a battle rapper pointing at you, shoving you, <laughs> pushing you. A group of them will surround you in a kind of a active intimidation. Do you know what I mean? And they call that freedom of expression. There's a subtle yeah. difference. But, but I think one of the, another one of the reasons they're, they're losing steam is like you say, like you're telling us about the types of arguments they'll use where immediately everyone else is a Nazi and stuff. Or racist. And, but I think the average man on the street, the layman, looks at that and even he can see that that's a bullshit argument because he knows that the average Trump supporter or whatever isn't a Nazi. Like he's the average person knows that. And so when he sees people using that as an argument and trying to get him on their side saying, he thinks I don't want to be with you because that's absolute bullshit. What you think? So they're really shooting themselves in the, in the foot. And if they do want to make a real change, they need to change their arguments and their, their whole approach completely. The left tends to assume it has the moral high ground. So if a left winger hard die in the wall, left winger heard what you just said, they would justify it as, well, look, we've got the moral high ground. Well, they might hit me. They might <laughs> punch you I mean. for being... That's the new... The new, the new uh, You're a fucking white male. Yeah. They they realize, they've realised that they've got the numbers and they've got the power so they can <laughs> behave in the way they want, which is pretty much what neo-Nazi... <laughs> that's, that's how you win a war. Yeah. But apparently they don't have the numbers because they've, they've been on the losing side of well, yeah, the they had, last had few political discourses. The left yeah. always overestimates how left-wing 
their country is. But do you think maybe subconsciously or even consciously that they're, they're aware that they're sort of losing the argument and dwindling? So they're actually getting more and more angry. I think the left struggles with the idea that, oh, well, we've got the moral high ground. So that's it. That's the end of the, the discussion. The debate is over right there. Like they're not going to entertain a different viewpoint so long as they think they're on the moral high ground. So the, it's the death of nuance, the death of pluralism. So what arguments could, could we offer them? If any of them are listening, we could do, try and do them a favour. What, what could they do differently? The left never responds to anyone attacking the left particularly know, well. But can they take advice? I'd say maybe swear a little bit less, make your signs a little less vulgar. I have seen some pictures of some really funny signs. Um, like I saw some funny signs which said like, this is the worst thing that's happened since such and such person died on Game of Thrones, you know? Right. And yeah. it was funny. It's ironic, postmodern, all that shit. But it's like, what the fuck has that actually got to do with anything? And yeah. it just shows that they were more there just for to get a picture taken and narcissistic. I view it as myself and other center left people. We've basically, we're just kind of walking away from it. We're not really putting up a fight and we're just retreating to the internet, to YouTube, to podcasts. And we're just talking shit about the left in general. We're not really getting involved in any way. You're just complaining rather than yeah, just moaning, offering suggestions. Yeah. So I've offered suggestions. I've said they've got to weed out the actual mentally ill people. That's and all then, that's left. And also improve their fashion sense and use less swear words on their <laughs> placards, however witty they may be. I can't really think of other suggestions. Well, let's talk about well, Labour. No, it's a, it, they need to reconnect with the working class. Do you agree, disagree that Labour are no really, they're not really the working class party anymore? Well, it's everyone, probably more UKIP now. Everyone is saying they've lost the working class. What can they do? Maybe they need to go for the upper class, the higher class. <laughs> I think who big, they can go for now. A big there. problem is there is a really marked difference between working class people's outlook on how things are going, how their life is going, versus middle class voters. And Labour can't win with just one base over the other. They can't win with only working class votes. They can't win with only middle class votes. And they have to somehow bridge the gap. But the left is in a position where they don't have that capacity for nuance, for a pluralistic approach. It's our way of the highway as far as the left is concerned. And the left traditionally kind of hates, they kind of hate working class people. So it looks to me like Labour are trying to win by just winning over left-leaning middle-class voters, and they're not going to win that way. So you think that, so basically you're saying they're not going to win that way. We can't think of any other ways they can win. No, so so how, how can they win? Um, so what I think maybe the only thing that will bring them back into prominence is that the other side will eventually get so out of control and overpowered. Yeah, I think they they'll, 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 just, they'll just become the natural alternative again. Look at what the Tories are doing right now. Because the Tories are, according to the polling, if you trust the polls, they're winning over working class and middle class voters at the moment, the Tories. And they're doing it with a one nation unifying rhetoric that's actually fairly liberal sounding. They're not really liberals, but their rhetoric is liberal. The left are employing what it's called identity politics, right? Or identitarian politics, if you want to sound smart. And this, to me, is... I find identity politics to be just wholly, inherently divisive and polarising. Cameron, you are somewhat of a comic book fan, a part of the comic book fan community. Somewhat. Have you seen what the identity politics crowd did to comic books? 
Oh god, they've like um effeminized them quite a lot. Yeah. In that many yeah. Marvel characters have been, you know, completely killed off and replaced and given female and leads. Uh Thor, uh Wolverine. Well, the sales have plummeted. Uh, so they they're actually going to sort of wreck on the whole thing. And like the comics yeah. do every couple of years they destroy their entire universe. Like Marvel they're, basically they're going to do something like that for this. Cuz Marvel <laughs> basically tried to appease people who don't really read comic books. It was pointless exercise. Oh yeah, they needed, the, they needed the success of their films was going to bring people in to look at the comics. Not really. So they wanted to try to, well, yeah, why not? The, sales, they, the movies haven't driven up comic book sales at all. But, but I think what? they've peaked interest, yeah. which is oh, why okay. I think Marvel have changed. The moral of the story was <laughs> the identity politics being introduced into comic books just pissed comic book readers off. It just took a community of comic book readers who would have been diverse anyway. There would have been some ethnic minority comic book readers and what have you. And it just drove wedges between them. And I saw <laughs> identity politics do the exact same thing to the skepticism and the atheism community. The Reason Rally, the first Reason Rally a few years ago attracted, I think, of something like 200,000 people. The Reason Rally of last year after... The identitarians had come in and poisoned it. I think it attracted a max, I think it was about 20,000. So in the span of a few years, it went from 200,000 to only 20,000. Now, last week, Tim, there was a bit that you said that I ended up cutting from last week's podcast because I wanted to actually bring it up again this week. Okay, must have been good. That Financial Times article. Was that it was good? The Financial Times article talking about Generation Z, who are like, I don't know, basically born shortly after the year 2000. Supposedly, they're what like really socially conservative. What was it you were saying last week? Yeah, they're they're more they're the most conservative generation since the fifties. Oh, that's compared to like our generation. Even Thatcher's kids, yeah, weren't aren't as conservative as Tony Blair's kids. I guess you could say. Well, no, it's it's Generation X, Generation Y. Uh, us, yeah. No, I'm Generation X. Oh well, I'm more. Why? Despite what I say, I'm not, I wouldn't class myself as conservative, but apparently a lot of these youngsters are now. It's all cool to be like uh, a little bit edgy and... Uh... It's weird to think though, isn't it? Because school, schools are right now are very left wing and have been for the last, I would say, last 20, 25 years, yeah. which means kids are coming through these left wing schools and then they're coming out of these schools as right wing. It's like the old joke. There used to be a joke back in the 80s and 90s that if you wanted your son or daughter to be atheist, you sent them to a Roman Catholic school to ensure they would come out as an atheist. So it's now like if you want your kids to be right wing, you send them to one of our British schools. <laughs> but it's true. It's like people will naturally uh, rebel against the status quo. Um, a mainstream, the mainstream can't be counterculture. Logically, it or, can't be both. Cool, yeah. just by nature of its existence. So whereas it was like traditionally sort of alternative and cool to be like inclusive and friendly and try and help everyone out, that's suddenly become the boring status quo now. And now everyone wants to sort of be a go-getter and survivalist, drinking their own piss, spare grills, <laughs> every man for himself. Well, you're referencing a, uh, a Paul Joseph Watson video here where yeah. the video is titled Conservatism is the New Counterculture. Leftists are desperately clinging to this idea that they have the monopoly on cool and that no countercultural movement could ever be created by the right. In fact, I've never seen so many members of the lefty Twitterati so triggered as when I tweeted, conservatism is the new counterculture. So I tweeted it again (laughs) and again. And again, I'm triggered. Seriously, I know the word triggered gets overused now, 
But this was a deluge of butthurt. What are they so afraid of? Well, as Breitbart said, politics is downstream from culture. Most young people who aren't paying attention to the news get their opinions from celebrities. Hollywood and the entertainment industry viciously polices the boundaries of accepted opinion so that anyone who strays from the leftist orthodoxy is ostracized and excommunicated. They're all for diversity until it comes to diversity of thought. And that's why celebrities are so fucking boring. None of them dare express an original opinion. Because if they did, they'd be hounded out of a career by their intolerant peers. But the left is starting to lose their omnipotent control of counterculture. Why? Well, counterculture used to be intrinsically leftist because the right had political power. It was a natural counterbalance. But up until very recently, the right had been getting its ass kicked in the culture war for decades. So now we have a whole new generation emerging who have no memory whatsoever of the right being in political power or having any dominance in the culture war. All they've experienced is the left's total domination of the culture war and their intellectual intolerance of anyone who goes against the grain. So for t- so, what does it mean when you're starting to agree with an InfoWars reporter? You know, I think he made a good point. I think he made a good point, and uh, there's nothing wrong with agreeing with this way of thinking. His reasoning makes sense. He's right. The left dominated the counterculture, maybe not so much the political sphere. Well, in Britain, there was a you know three consecutive Labour governments. Although hardcore left would say Tony Blair was centre right, he wasn't even left wing. But anyway, I agree with him where he's saying there's a point in the video a bit later on where he says the left have completely lost their sense of humour. They don't know how to laugh at anything, including themselves anymore. I agree with that completely. And that wasn't the left when I was growing up during the 80s and 90s. The left was pretty funny. But yeah, they're basically humourless now. Where I disagree with Paul Joseph Watson, he's saying conservatism is the new counterculture. I wouldn't call it conservatism. I would call it more a nativist libertarianism. Another topic for another Side-tracked. day. Because I remember a time a couple of years ago where I was dying. I was begging for a comedic, irreverent counterculture that was against language policing, against political correctness. And then Milo came on the scene. And, and because... Like, yes! Uh, like, and, do you know what I mean? Thank and, God. And, and he's gay. Yeah, and they can't yeah, attack him because he's gay. Yeah, he's and he's an defense. ethnic minority in yeah. a way. He was perfect. But then, like, he's got a really... Um, I don't agree with him and his like his idea of free speech, absolutist free speech. I'm not 100% on board with that. Not 100% on board with some of the things he says, but that's the whole point. I don't have to agree with him. Yeah. And I don't have to punch anyone in the face just because they like Milo Yiannopoulos. But the left would say, you're a reactionary, Tom. You're too much in favor of the status quo. You are. Yeah, but you've got to have a sense of humor sometimes, man. How do you de- endear yourself to the masses when you don't have a sense of humor? How does the left... You the wear a humorless... t-shirt. <laughs> yeah, an ironic one. You know one of those ones with an arrow that says, like, I'm a stupid. Yeah. This is what a humorless cunt looks like. <laughs> so, is the centre-left dying? Or maybe the internet has skewed our perception of reality to make us think it's dying. More on that right. in segment two. Do you guys know what the echo chamber effect is? Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> but it's the idea that you will find like-minded people on the internet, and in a sense, in the in the cyberspace, you'll congregate around the same thing, and you'll all be like-minded, and there'll be no dissenting opinion, effectively. 
And I think this is fueled by the fact the internet doesn't reveal anything to you or about you that you didn't already reveal yourself to the internet. Like I'll give you an example. People say, um, oh, I found a new band. I found a new form of music through the internet. And chances are that's not really true. Chances are you told the internet what kind of bands you like. And then the ent- the internet found a couple of bands that match the criteria that you, the input that you gave. It's an algorithm. Exactly. Yeah. But what is it that we tell the internet about us? We tell it our likes, our dislikes in terms of like music, TV shows, consumer products, political persuasions. Even if you're not trying to tell it things, it's making huge assumptions about you. I always laugh. I don't laugh sometimes, but the the amount of the the adverts or the pop-ups you get, that it just assumes that you're going to want to buy this product. Well, it's assuming it because you told the internet this is the kind of thing you're interested in. Yeah, but you don't deliberately tell it. Anyway. Anyway. I asked, what is it we reveal about ourselves to the internet, given that all the internet does is just reflect back what we, the input we give it. In regards to social media, you tend to show only the best of yourself. What you're saying to the internet tends to be, I'm a little bit more intelligent than I really am. I'm a little bit more moral than I really am. I'm a little bit more cultured than I really am. Do you know what I mean? Like people have a kind of false perception of themselves and then that's what they show the internet. I think we get a false perception of ourselves reflected back from the internet to us. Well, you said that you, you think users are showing their best sides to the internet. And they On social media, yeah, definitely. Uh, yeah. But then why is the, why is the internet... I've shown definitely my dark sides to the internet. But then, yeah, why is the internet full of so much shit if everyone's trying to, like, make You've got shit posters. You've got an army of shit posters out there on the internet well, the that internet, are just trying to wind people up. The internet brings a beautiful anonymity <laughs> and protections it allows like a wimpy person to to insult someone who'd like knock their block off in real life if they're standing in front of them someone's noticed on twitter when uh at real donald trump tweets anyone who replies to his tweet with like a positive sentiment of like yes donald trump go you know that kind of thing they automatically are filtered out and the anti-trump replies are put at the top so when you're scrolling through twitter and you see it and you click on his tweet you instantly see all the anti-Trump people first, and then you've got to scroll all the way down to find someone who's actually pro-Trump. And it gives a false perception that Trump's not nearly as popular as he actually is. And that's like a fairly subtle thing. And I, I, I see it in more obvious mm. things, just on my uh, news feed on Facebook. Um, it's interesting. Some some of my friends who I know their political views are sort of pro-Trump and stuff. Um, I used to see them a lot just mm. pop up before my news feed. And then after the election, I just, you know, I have to go to their page to see what they've written. I guess the point <laughs> that I'm getting at, and something that you're alluding to there, Tim, is that yes. social media sites like Facebook, Twitter, what have you, they're curating the content that you see. And they're doing it, like Cameron says, using an algorithm whereby you basically told it what you like and it's giving you back what you like yeah so but it can be really negative in the sense of say hypothetically right a white guy gets mugged by two black guys say right just hypothetical yeah and then say they go on the internet and they let the internet know that they're a white person who just got mugged by two black guys and then the internet will take that and give him back it will link him to stories about it. It will link him to videos about it. He'll find a website where a guy's gone through and chronicled all crimes against white people. Do you know what I mean? And it'll kind of reinforce some negative 
So, sentiments yeah. and ideas they are dirty immigrants because <laughs> so i always laugh when people talk about like online trolling or just generally being pissed off with the shit that's on the internet it's like if you don't like a tv program you can change the channel or you could just turn it off you could walk away from the laptop hard to do isn't it with social media impossible now we definitely have a habit of thinking of ourselves as being more moral more intelligent basically better than what we really are and i think the internet is going to reinforce that by just portraying ourselves back to us what i'm getting at is we of course human beings don't all agree on all things of course there's differences of opinion but with the internet and the fact that it creates an echo chamber effect we get a false sense of just how sure we are and our in our given beliefs and what have you we'll, we'll just look at the uh, what everyone was so shocked at brexit yeah. everyone was so shocked at hillary losing because the internet told us the opposite because we were telling it Oh, we think Hillary's going to win yeah. easy. Then yeah. so the internet pushed that back. How yeah. could Trump win? There's no way Trump could win. So that's yeah. what the internet yeah. gave back. Like it's it's sort of very out outdated and it's not even really used anymore. But you, you, the you thing know, is, you make it sound like the internet's but, the internet's generating and controlling this shit as if it's like got some no. kind of individual conscience to do no, it. It's just it's a taking, reflection of the shit yeah. that people are portraying and sharing. Because here's what I was going to say: like if someone who is very pro-Trump, all the internet showed them was pro-Trump content they would have had the impression Trump was easily going to win. Because no, all they saw like, in their echo no, chamber no, was like pro-Trump going to a rhetoric. library and picking up a book. You're going to read the book that you're interested in. You're going to like ignore the rest of the shit until you're ready to take it in. In the internet, if they're looking up stuff about Trump, they're going to look on the positive spins and they're going to yeah. avoid the negative stuff. It doesn't mean they're not being exposed to they don't have stuff. To. They're just filtering it out by choice. The algorithms are doing it for them now. They don't have to filter, actively filter out. If they're using Google and they type in something and I type in something, I'd expect to get the same thing. No. No, it has, Google Unless hasn't operated it that way for by, years. So what, what's it based on? It's Your tailored choices. to you. Yeah. Really? People yeah. who type in the same search query into Google, depending on their prior search history in Google, yeah. will be different. Not always. Sometimes, like, if you, if you Google the name of a movie, something innocuous, right? Yeah, it'll give you the same result. But Google does take into account things like your political leanings, your biases. Into It takes it into account through your Google searches. And that's why some people get different results from other users. I think sometimes. I think if it's a really... If we type in something... Yeah, if it's a mundane thing you're, you're searching, for, yeah, 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 it'll, it'll give you the same result. But well, do you feel like there's a clear wall of separation between the online world and the offline world? Well, no, because if you go online and write something offensive like some scottish guy did last year who got arrested he actually ended he actually did uh time in prison um so he's sending death threats or something like that i don't i don't know or just racism or something yeah that was it um that that's an example of the virtual world becoming the real world where something that he said in uh in uh electronic information you know actually had a physical outcome real world he committed a hate crime there is there is there is that (laughs) definite real effect isn't there I think there is a weird kind of dualism people have when it comes to the internet of thinking there is this separation between the online world and the offline it's world. It's great. It's great at mobilizing people. Now, do you remember Facebook doing a secret, well, not so secret experiment about a year or two ago where um, they realized they could manipulate people's moods by constantly just showing them negative stories, stories that were guaranteed to piss them off in their Facebook feed all oh, yeah. day long. Oh, yeah, yeah. Like, they were just ruining people's day. Orphaned kittens. we tend to react to negative stories in a stronger way than positive stories feel good stories and that's basically what facebook found you're more likely to click on the headline that annoys you the one that doesn't unless it's associated with porn but even then 
trying to turn myself going towards angry sites now. <laughs> well, what? Because what the internet's doing is it doesn't know that when you click on the headline that annoys you, the internet algorithm doesn't know that it's annoying you. It presumes that well, this is the kind of content you like, so the internet's going to send you more of that content. Does it know? Maybe it can tell that it annoys you more. Because, you know, um, touchpads and iPads, so phones, they're actually... It feels t- how hard you push. Yeah, they're touch-sensitive. It could read that shit, honestly. You'd be amazed at what, what they can do these days. So what I'm saying is, right, because we react strongly, more strongly to negative things, things that piss us off on the internet, the internet is going to keep sending us things that piss us off, and we're going to be left with a false, Im- a false impression that things are way worse than what they really are. Like, say if you, um, say like the whole neo-Nazi thing we were talking about earlier, and you start typing in like, is Richard B. Spencer a neo-Nazi? Blah, 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 right? Yeah. You know how there's like the kind of going down the rabbit hole effect of the internet where you just kind of keep clicking relevant links. You just keep going further and further down. Yeah. I think that's making people feel like things are way worse than they really are. That say in the sense of, Immigration levels are a lot higher than what they really are. Violent crime levels are a lot higher than what they really are. The, the sad truth is, things are like a lot worse than most people realise. Like, because there's too many people. Well, no, just take this example. Like, we don't work as paramedics or firemen, so we don't we don't day to day see sort of like fucked up stuff and like people the worst of humanity no just horrible (laughs) stuff things yeah the worst humanity horrible things we don't we're not in like a child war zone and stuff like that you you don't want to see that stuff so i think you naturally shy away from it or people do well sometimes you see like i said like the the you tend to when it comes to social media you're showing the best of yourself and the best of your life Mm. so when you're looking on facebook at your friends lives they're obviously showing you I'm a really active person. I like doing lots of different things. I like eating really good food and you get an impression. It's a bastard for depressing you. Yeah, it's depressing because you think everyone has a much better life than what you have. But what you don't realise is your friends think the exact same thing about you and everybody else. You're all in the same boat. You just don't know it. I wish I had the life people think I do. On Facebook. (laughs) Oh, you know me. I'm an agitator on Facebook. I'm not the go-to example of like your everyday Facebook user. I'm a dick. What I don't like and what I've seen a lot of recently on Facebook, which is not surprising because all the politics and stuff that everyone's been obsessed with, just the virtue signaling. It's like, here's a picture of this little baby that's been blown up. And I'm like, what? Like? And I'm like, that's terrible. Why, why have you put that? Oh, this little baby was, this, this little baby was, was, this little baby's been blown up because of, you know, Syria or something. So it's current, it's political. So, Thanks, that, Hillary. so, so, that's, so that gives me the right to put this like picture on your timeline. And it's like virtue signaling. It's become a real bugbear of mine now. Now, I'm talking about how the internet has like a kind of amplification effect in terms of negativity. However, the sword does cut both ways. The internet can give us a false impression in terms of the internet is a liberating force and that you can use the internet and become an internet entrepreneur. You can become famous and make lots of money on YouTube by providing content like what we're doing now. We don't make any money on this though, but it gives you that false impression of, well, if I just, if I just keep pumping out content, maybe I'll be big someday. And it's like, no, the internet only shows you the people who are successful, the small few. It doesn't show you the hundreds of thousands of people that tried and failed. You never get to see them. Mm. I think it kind of gives us a false impression there. But then a lot of it is clickbait, isn't it? So maybe that's like a natural filter that what people will click on most. Like you see videos on YouTube, they're like the thumbnail will be some girl with her tits out. <laughs> 
and do the video will have like two million views. You'll watch the video, it won't actually have any of that thumbnail in. And you think, yeah, that's why everyone's watched, clicked on that. Yeah. And that's like a natural, natural filter. So that it is, it's a mixture of algorithms and human nature. Mm. So it is like this sort of hybrid AI developing. It's all quite exciting. Now, t- speaking of uh, echo chambers and bubbles, after the last general election, the 2015 general election where the Tories somehow miraculously formed a majority, something that we on the left thought was never going to happen ever again after the early noughties. It was certainly a thing to see on BBC. Oh, was yeah. that's crazy. The thank general God. election, 2015. It thank, was, uh, yeah. thank God they had a ground floor studio. That's all I'm saying. They'd be like jumping off the balcony. Mm-hmm. Point being, I realised, okay, I've been in a left-wing echo chamber because I thought, yeah, the Tories winning, that's an impossibility. It can't happen. And it did happen. So I felt like, okay, I've got to step out of the echo chamber and start reading up on more right-wing news sources and right-wing pundits to kind of get of an idea, uh, to try and become a more informed voter, basically. Mm. Recently, I was coming to the conclusion that people are becoming more and more like me. They're doing that more and more centre-leftist, so stepping out of the left-wing echo chamber. And it kind of filled me with a bit of optimism. But then I realised, well, hold on. Maybe I've just walked out of one echo chamber into another echo chamber that's giving me a false impression of reality. And, and from the sounds of it, it hasn't changed your base principles or beliefs. Not really, no. It's just like giving you a wider perspective, which is only a good thing, isn't it? But how do I know that I'm not just locked in another echo chamber? Because I... Th- it's I, like the Matrix. People have all these worries about computers and technology and the internet and politics and stuff. But I, I think we've got to put some trust in ourselves like i say like all the extra information you've been exposed to tom it hasn't changed your sort of fundamental principles and beliefs that you had probably probably before the internet was even around so like there is that thing of like gut instinct or maybe your heart and you do have this sort of everyone has this everyone has a sense of right or wrong yeah but everyone also has a filter built in where you do have like a bullshit filter or do does this make me feel good or bad I, I think people should put more trust in in the human side of things. I don't think these algorithms will completely nullify debate and discourse because people will naturally, you know, change their views or stay the same. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty hard. People don't really change their views much. And like we were saying earlier, it's hard to break the addiction from the internet. Yeah. And but I, I think that's what, in order to get a more clearer understanding of what's actually going on around us. I think we're going to have to try and break the addiction. I mean, I've been reading testimonies from people who said they deleted their Facebook account a couple of years ago and they just, they don't miss it. They thought they would. They thought they would go insane not logging onto Facebook and they love not logging onto Facebook now. Mm. Can be done. You've got to break the cycle. Yeah. What am I going to do this evening? I'm not going to log on to Facebook. <laughs> yeah. <I> think, <laughs> like I say, we're, we're all locked in these echo chambers. Mm. And our view of the other, those who are not inside our echo chamber, we have this kind of nasty habit of dehumanizing them because they're not there in front of us as a real person. They're like a username on a screen, do you know what I mean? Yeah. And the more we do civil political discourse on the internet, the more polarized, the more vitriolic it's going to get. And we all think we're the open-minded ones. It's everybody else who's closed-minded. We all think we're the moral ones who have the moral high ground. Mm. And everyone else is, we sneer and look down our noses at everybody else. There are, like, the current zeitgeist now is that everyone's massively divided and everyone's really polarized. And isn't it fucking awful how divided we are? And it's like, well, no, look, it's nothing new. People have disagreed since their beginning of time. Do you know what I mean? Human beings don't agree on things. But it's okay. It's not the end of the world. But the internet is making us feel like these differences are irreconcilable. Mm. When really, the common ground is there. 
but the in- the nature of the internet doesn't nudge us that direction. It nudges us in a more negative, vitriolic direction. I think you're blowing the situation out of proportion. I think on the whole, people, if they are mildly affected by the internet or some of the choices that they're given to, it's like it, it really just just steers them to the kind of personality or kind of cultural kind of interest that they actually have. And I don't think it's 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 changing us any more than our natural leanings were pushing us towards anyway. I feel like people on the left and the right both view it as, well, look, we have all the facts on our side. We don't need to have the argument. We've already had the argument when really they haven't. They've just been inside the echo chamber where everyone agrees with each other. Movie talk! What movie did only I go see this week, guys? Hacksaw Ridge. That's right. Here's the trailer. Andrew Garfield, directed by Mel Gibson, with uh, World War II as a supporting artist. (laughs) (laughs) What the hell is your delay, Captain? We're waiting, sir. Waiting for what? Private Doss. Who the hell is Private Doss? I always dreamed about being a doctor, but I uh, didn't get much school. I can't stay here while all them go fight for me. Would you figure this war is just going to fit in with your ideas? While everybody else is taking life, I'm going to be saving it. And that's going to be my way to serve. Directed by Mel Gibson, his triumphant return to Hollywood, starring Andrew Garfield as Private Desmond Doss. Do you remember Andrew Garfield from the Spider-Man movies? God, they were atrocious. He's not a bad actor, though, I've got to say. Those films, yeah, were terrible. Also starring Vince Vaughn as the... Uh, Lovable Sergeant yeah, the stereotypical <laughs> drill Sergeant Hal. And uh, Sam Worthington as Captain Glover. And also uh, Teresa Palmer as the... Well, as Dorothy, the love interest. And who's the um, actor from The Matrix? Where's something? Hugo Weaving. And Hugo Weaving. Does he play a baddie? In a way, yeah. He's uh, Private Desmond Doss's dad. And he's like... He That's was a bit in of alliteration going on there. He was in the Great War, and it basically it fucked with his head. Really? He became, so it wasn't as great as they make out. Not really. He became a violent <laughs> drunk after them, and he used to just beat his two sons. But Hacksaw Ridge is the true story of Private Desmond Doss, a pacifist, conscientious objector who signed up to fight in the Pacific in World War Two for some inexplicable reason, and uh, he ended up receiving the Medal of Honor, even though he didn't fire a single shot due to his non-violent religious principles. But still, he managed to save the lives of 75 American soldiers as Despite an unarmed... being a communist. <laughs> as an unarmed medic. A pacifist. Oh, sorry. Communists always get those two confused. But you know, pacifism and religion is not necessarily the... What, go hand in hand? Oh, yeah, really. it seems a bit... I mean, uh, is it, so it is a true story. Yeah. He's a real person, and that right spoilers right at the end of the film. He does. There's um, documentary footage from the early noughties. Yeah, where it's him talking into camera. Yeah. Did he kick a grenade? I don't know if that bit's true. I think it's Hacksaw Ridge. I think it's a pretty good war film. It's not a great war film. It's not truly classic. No. There's um, it's lit down by a couple of cartoonish moments. Like one you see in the trailer is where he like he soccer kicks a grenade and it sends him flying back. But there's uh, another bit. Where Vince Vaughn is the classic drill sergeant who Private Doss, Andrew Garfield, looks up to as like a father figure. Yeah. And his legs get shot out. And so he's trapped up on the ridge. 
Because basically there's this big cliff face and the Americans keep climbing up to the top of the cliff, taking that little bit up there. And then next day the Japanese come back and kick them off the cliff. And, uh, Vince Vaughn's stuck up there. He's bleeding out. And uh, Andrew Garfield stumbles across him, you know, miraculously. And uh, he's like, get off the ridge, leave me here. All of that kind of cliche stuff. And then Andrew Garfield gets a green blanket and uh, Vince Vaughn sits on the green blanket and then Andrew Garfield, and whilst he's dragging him along, Vince Vaughn's got a machine gun and he's picking off the Japanese as they're chasing them off of the cliff. Oh no. Yeah, I know. It's a little bit like loaded, like lethal weapon a little bit. This is a personal gift from the United States government designed to bring death to the enemy. I'm sorry, Sergeant. I can't touch a gun. She don't kill. No, sir. You know, quite a bit of killing does occur in war. Private Doss does not believe in violence. Do not look to him to save you on the battlefield. I don't think this is a question of religion. I think this is cowardice. I'll fall in love with you because you weren't like anyone else. They're saying you could go to prison. I don't know how I'm going to live with myself if I don't stay true to what I believe. With the world so set on tearing itself apart seem like such a bad thing to me to want to put a little bit of it back together i heard it was quite a gory movie or oh, at least very. or yeah, at yeah, least yeah. gibson doesn't shy away from the realities no. of war and like he's got a bit of previous in uh we were brave heart that's a good movie uh but in, in like jesus chronicles uh, vietnam one the passion of the christ and was that uh, quite violent apocalyptic yeah they're all they're all very bloody in their own way um so it was there was a bit of viscera in this i gather it was refreshing in the sense that the hero of the movie, the protagonist, was a pacifist. He doesn't actually kill anyone in the movie. He only saves people's lives. But you get to see a lot of killing in the film. Yeah, there's tons of gore. <laughs> like, um, it follows the, the standard f- full metal jacket whereby you see our hero go through training. He's a fresh recruit. He befriends everyone else in his battalion and all of that. And that, of course, in this one, because he's a pacifist and he won't pick up a gun, initially his other... What do you call them? Teammates? Yeah. Squadron. They hate his guts at the beginning, but then he wins them over. Because basically they come to the conclusion, you know, he's got like a divine protection over him. That's why there's a bit in the trailer where they go like, oh, why haven't you gone up the hill yet? Because Desmond hasn't finished praying and they won't go up without him. Of course, I could be a bit of a sod and say like other people had to kill on his behalf. So he didn't get shot he, while he was like running around. Saving yeah. People. Was he doing his yeah. There were other yeah. people like covering him. Well, I mean, I don't know. There was a bit in the film where one of them, one of his brothers in arms has to shoot a Japanese soldier to save him. And he like he hesitates for a split second because it's like, oh, it's Doss. Would would he do the same for me? You know, that kind of thing. He wins his squad over in the sense that he is genuinely fearless. Like he does just run out there and start grabbing people and like dragging them back, trying to do what he can in terms of saving their life. Staying down low. Yeah. And there's a bit where it gets, like I say, a bit cartoonish in the film where uh, these Japanese soldiers are making out their surrendering, but then they pull out grenades and there's one, like, he catches they one. Shout, I like that! <laughs> <laughs> well, there's a lot of similarities between uh, ISIS and the Imperial Japanese Army. Yeah. Kamikaze. Suicide bombers. bombers. Now, Andrew Garfield, he got a bit of but stick for being in the Spider-Man ship. movies. Yeah, because yeah, they were terrible. But I don't. he's not a bad actor. He gave a pretty good performance in this. He caught the character. The real Desmond Doss is a really kind of laid back, giggly, always sees the positives kind of character. And he caught that really well. His accent was pretty good. Whereas Sam Worthington, he's an Australian. And every time he does an American accent, it's never quite right. And it always, <laughs> it's a little bit of an Australian tinge to it all the oh, time. No. And it takes you out of it a bit. 
One thing I will say, it was really nice, the uh, the love interest. Mm. It was just plain, straightforward, simple romance story. It's kind of, I feel like it's been a while since you've just seen, had a like a straight romance story in a film with just young man, young woman meet and fall in love. So it's like sliding doors. <laughs> that's, that's like the most unstraightforward yeah. love story about multiple dimensions and the yeah. London Underground. Yeah, just like World War Two. It just wasn't pretentious in any way because it didn't need to be. You just needed to know that he was leaving something behind in order. It to... was a simple story for simple minds of a simple man. Was he married to her? Yeah, they did get married before he went off. Private Doss, you are free to run into the hellfire of battle without a single weapon to protect yourself. I'm gonna get you home. There's something you gotta see. Who did this? Curse the coward. Help me. Go ahead, trust me. You better come home to me. Please, Lord. Help me get one more. Help me get one more. Then, of course, Mel Gibson. Was he born again, Christian? Did he do a Stan Lee and appear in the film? No, no, no. But he, there was a lot of Christian imagery at the end where um, Andrew Garfield's getting stretched off in a classic Christ-like pose. Jesus pose. But would you recommend this film, Tim? <laughs> I've, not, I've not seen it, but um, I quite like the idea of seeing it. The trailer looks certainly action-packed. The battle uh, sequences are really good. Yeah, I'd, I'd see it. Just for that, to be honest, I'm easily pleased. Yeah, the last 40 minutes is close-up, death, destruction, war. I'd say it's a good film, not a great film, but it's definitely worth watching. If you like war movies, you'll definitely enjoy it. Um, and it's kind of refreshing where the hero was someone who didn't kill anybody. He was a pacifist. And there's obviously the feel-good element that he wins over his fellow squad mates and his commanding officers earns their respect. There's a nice bit at the end where um, his commanding officer was going, oh yeah, I hated him at first. I thought he was a complete coward. How the hell was I supposed to know he was going to be the most courageous soldier there ever was? Ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much for listening to us babbling bozos. Nice conversation. Thank you, Cameron, for coming in. It's okay. Once again, thank you, Tim. Pleasure. Thanks for having me. Stalwart of the podcast. Don't forget to like us on Facebook, follow us on SoundCloud, subscribe on iTunes. It would help us out a lot. And anyway, till next time. Goodbye. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.